It's very nice to be with you all. Thank you for the invitation. Um, we appreciate the opportunity to, you know, get the exercise. So thank you and things that we uh, we have been sharing. Uh, as I was talking with Eric, I mentioned uh, the fact that these are things that we've been exploring as we've thought about what are the things that are that are hindering the blessing uh, among the people of God, uh, the things that may be obstructing the, the blessing of God, the, the, the outworking of the vine, of the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a few of these things that we've kind of thought over and kind of gotten together and been kind of doing a little bit of teaching and sharing those thoughts. And so uh, I'd like to thank my brother Dave and um, you know the song selections for us uh, guiding us and kind of connecting all these thoughts. And uh, I think it's the best job I've ever seen anybody do, at least when I've come up to share something. But with that being said, we intend to explore some other enemies and move on to some other ones. We wanted to touch briefly this morning on Satan, what uh, at least at the very basic level, how he operates, what his schemes are, uh, many different things that the scripture talks about as far as his schemes, but mainly that, that he sifts, he proves, he applies pressure and wants to know and wants to see what in fact we, our faith is in. And so um, we were thinking uh, in song about that one word. I know my brother was talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the word of God. And yet my mind went to Revelation chapter 19 when speaking of the, of the, those last battles before God brings in his kingdom, where Christ brings in his kingdom and the era, the golden era of peace that we that we're looking for, for the Son of God to bring in. It says that the Lord Jesus Christ, it says in verse 15 of chapter 19, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. It's interesting. Um, the word is a sword, and yet we, we understand it's symbolic because it comes from his mouth. It is the word of God that ultimately triumphs against the foes. And it's not having a bigger man or a bigger weapon, but it's the word of God uh, that is so important. So we want to stress that again before we move on. We thought just for a little bit briefly about, about Satan, the enemy uh, upon in which in whose territory we operate, we work on hostile territory. We we operate in a world that the Scripture says is under his sway. First John chapter five and verse nineteen. It's in the sway of the evil one, and that's a, a very serious reality that we must not take for granted. But tonight we'd like to consider an enemy that lurks within. We have enemies out on the outside, but we also have enemies that lurk within. And I'm referring to the flesh. I'd like to think about what is the flesh? What must we do to combat the flesh? And what does God supply in our weakness? And we'd like to start off by reading a few verses out of Romans chapter 8. There are several passages in the New Testament, mainly in Romans and in Galatians that have to do with with this idea of the flesh. So Romans chapter 8, we'll read just a few of the verses here, starting in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and on account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, and really that word carnally is just a different way of translating the same word flesh. So to be flesh minded, if you will, is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, through His Spirit who dwells in us. And we'll, we'll stop our reading right there. We'd just like to look at a few of the verses that are embedded in, in this greater teaching or this greater argument that Paul is bringing about in chapter 8 as he continues to unravel the outworking of the gospel. Um, and first of all, you know, we, he's talking about these two different natures. And we, we've discussed this several times before, no doubt. We've uh, considered the differences between these natures. Now, when we use that word nature, we mean the, the natural uh, outworking of what we are. And because of sin and because of rebellion, the, the natural outworking of what we are as human beings is sin and rebellion. It is, it comes natural to us. It is not something that must be taught or that you need to be indoctrinated in. It is natural, comes natural, like a seed that is planted. In, within it, it's, it's DNA, it's encoded. It does, when supplied with nutrition and water and sunlight, it unravels as it's designed to do. And so, in the same manner, when we're talking about the flesh, and the spirit, it is these, these natures, these, what, what unravels naturally and does not require any, again, any indoctrination or any teaching. And we see that these two natures, they come from different origins. One, and they have different destinies. One leads to death, scripture says, and these are things that we see here in verse five and verse six. And the other leads to life. Now, the main verses that we like to focus in on this are um, verses 7 and 8. And here we see that uh, Paul is explaining that the flesh, the flesh mind, that it is at enmity with God. It is opposed to God. Naturally, it does nothing other than stand in opposition to God. Not only that, but he goes on to say that it, it is not subject to to the law of God. That is, it cannot, it does not have the ability to become subject to what God expects from mankind. It is incapable of doing that. Not only that, 
But uh, I would I would say further, elaborate further, and say that it cannot accept God's rule, not just His rules, but His rule. The flesh stands on its own. And so, through these means, we cannot please God. The Scripture makes it plain. That is why Christ had to send the Spirit of God. That is why, in part, God called Abraham from out of the nations to initiate this great plan of salvation by which, through the blessing that was promised through the seed of Abraham, which later we read through the prophets speaking about the Spirit of God that would be given through that seed, not only in the prophets like Joel chapter 2, but also when that last prophet, that mighty prophet before the Lord Jesus came, that one that came in the spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist came, when he spoke about Christ, when they asked him as to what his purpose was out there in the Jordan baptizing, he could say, I've come baptizing with water to prepare the people of Israel for the one that would baptize in the spirit of God. And so we see that God has been bringing this plan about, and as we mentioned this morning, hallelujah, we live in those times where God has fulfilled these things. And He needed to bring this about to be able to impart His Holy Spirit to flesh that that was corrupted, that was guilty and condemned to a lost eternity, but in repentance and faith in Christ can be baptized into the Spirit of God and now have the power and the nature to do what God wants us to do. Now, a great bit of all that we've kind of thrown out here, at least initially, is so abstract, isn't it? It's, it, it's kind of hard to appreciate with the eye. We do see the evidence of the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Uh, the Scripture talks about in, in Galatians chapter 5 about the fruits of the Spirit, those manifestations of the Spirit of God working and living and the life and the divine life of God working through us. And yet, but a lot of these different things that we discuss are, are somewhat abstract and hard to uh, look and to point to to explain exactly how it works. And so I thought tonight we could uh, look at a little bit of an example, uh, an example that's recorded in the scriptures, an object lesson, if you will. So if you would, turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. And we'd like to consider, when we think about the flesh which is at odds with God, human flesh, it's at odds with God, it, it is incapable of submitting to God's rule, it is incapable of being subject to the, to the law of God, and it is His perpetual enemy. We'd like to explore a different group of people in the Old Testament that God once upon a time in human history could speak of this group of people in a very strong way. He could use very strong words about this group of people. I'm referring to the Amalekites. And God could say of them that they are my enemies forever. That's a, that's a major indictment. That's a horrible place to be. But we'd like to see a little bit about what happened on this occasion in the history of the nation of Israel and hopefully see a little bit more about this enemy that lurks within us all, the flesh, and what provisions God has made for us to have victory in it. 
And so, um, if you're there in, in, in uh, Exodus 17, we'd like to start our reading. Verse 1, it says this, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Down to verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel because they tempted the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek. He discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You know, uh, I'm sure we've read this story many times before, and we've learned a lot of the details in Sunday school and other times when we've sat together to explore the Word of God. But these are powerful words. When God can speak about a culture, a people, and He can speak about them in this way that He chooses to make war with them from generation to generation, very serious place to be and 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 that is why we come here because it relates so much to this uh, enemy that we seek to explore the flesh but you know we'll take a second to set the stage here Israel has known the triumph of God they've seen something miraculous they've seen something absolutely incredible when you have this company of almost 2 million people leaving the civilized and developed nation of Egypt, now, of course, brought to its knees because of the several um, plagues that God did through Moses. And they have, they've come to the border uh, of, the, of the Red Sea and they were in fear for their lives because Pharaoh with his chariots and his weapons of war had them pinned against the sea And we know that God intervenes and there's a cloud that comes and disorients the armies of Pharaoh and they can't find them. And then the crossing of the Red Sea. God parts the waters. And Moses, you know, raises his hands and 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 the waters are parted and they cross on dry land. Down to the bottom of the Red Sea they go and up to the other side. Almost two million people, slaves, 
now uh, having been slaves for many generations in Egypt. And here they were being delivered by God. And now seeing the, the cloud removed and the enemies of God, Pharaoh and his chariots coming to pursue them in his rage and to bring them back into slavery and to bring them back under his hand, seeks to pursue them and down into the Red Sea they go and God allows the waters to collapse back on the chariots and the armies and, and there's just an incredible, miraculous event and, and it, it, we see that when they get to the other side, what they witness provokes them to sing. I mean, there's a whole uh, chapter of singing about the victory of what God has done. He's, he's you know, overcome the chariots, destroyed our enemies and, and God has liberated them. They're on the other side of the Red Sea. And then they begin now this journey through the Sinai Peninsula. And the scripture talks about how they were made to hunger. And they came to Moses and, and talked to him about you know the fact that you've got these two million people out here. How, how do we do this logistically? How are we going to survive this trip? And, and we're starting to become hungry. And, and God makes a provision in the manna. And every morning they, they wake they can go and harvest the manna that they need to survive for that day. And, you know, the, the exception is made on Saturday when, when there's double so that on the Sabbath, I'm sorry, on, on, uh, 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 on Friday, I, I guess, so that they don't have to collect any on the Sabbath. And then they come here to the Valley of Rephidim and, and God has them there and they're getting to that very important place where they're going to receive the law of God shortly. But there in this place, they talk about the thirst that they have and, and they need water and they grumble and there's contention as the scripture says. And God instructs Moses about the rock and he strikes the rock and water comes forth from the rock and supplies the need of this massive company of people out in the Sinai Peninsula. I mean, really, the whole affair is just, really, it's miraculous. I mean, I don't know if you've done any kind of outdoors-type things, uh, you know. I'm an armchair, you know, outdoorsman myself, and, uh, you know, I like to watch a lot of guys do it on TV. But, I mean, just the logistics of doing it for a small group of people. But imagine slaves now, you know, liberated and out here in the, in the Sinai Desert. And here God is making provision for them along the way. And so, you know, the question comes up naturally. Well, you know, how does, you know, how does this, uh, you know, how do we connect with this? And what way can we relate to this? Well, the scripture talks about how we as people of this world have have also known the victory, the liberation from the prince of this world. Uh, Paul could talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about Christ who is our Passover. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. There has been that sacrifice to, in that sense, redeem us from a lost world and to put us on a journey, if you will, on to an inheritance which is reserved for us according to 1 Peter chapter 1. Not only that, but we talk, we're, we're looking up and you know, they were hungry and they needed sustenance and God provided manna. And we think about the words of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 6 when he told his contemporaries, you know, Moses didn't give you the true bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. And he talks about how he descended from heaven. I am the bread of life. God has made that provision for us for the journey. 
God has provided everything we need for sustenance. Not only that, but we think about this this essential need for water. And in John chapter 7, the Lord Jesus invites those there after that feast. He talks about, come to me and I can give you rivers of living water that will spring from within. And John clarifies for us the meaning of that when he says Christ was speaking about the Holy Spirit of God. And so, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, at least symbolically, we, we can see that uh, we have a lot in common with the people, the ancient people of Israel. And, you know, they get to this valley now, and something starts happening. Uh, you know, they, have, they, they witness this incredible, miraculous defeat of Pharaoh. Like, they're free, like the forces and his armies, they're gone, and they're free on the other side of the Red Sea. But in the nighttime and in the opportunistic moments, there's a band of people that come out to start attacking the outer parts of the camp of Israel. I mean, you know, I imagine if I were in their shoes, having seen what they saw on the other side of the Red Sea, they would have thought, there's no one that can touch us. God will destroy all our enemies. But here the scripture tells us, is a band of people that were lurking and conducting what we're familiar with in, in our day, guerrilla warfare. And they would come out and sneak out at opportunistic moments. And they would kill the weak of the camp of Israel and the elderly. When we, we read these details in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, where Moses rehearses this encounter in the valley of Rephidim with the people of Amalek. And how they came out and attacked. And, and you know, if I were in their shoes, I, I would have, you know, asked myself, what's this about? Like, we, we, our company is being diminished by an enemy that runs and hides and sneaks and comes out and attacks and goes back and hides. An enemy that conducts guerrilla warfare. You know, the scripture says of these people, just for us to get acquainted with them a little bit more, that they are the family, they're, they're the grandsons of a very important man in the scripture. This company that was attacking the people of Israel were related to Israel. They were, their uh, grandfather was Esau, the brother of Jacob. And like their grandfather, they were, they represent surely those people who had, you know, they were not part of the line of faith. Their grandfather was a man who for food, as we were thinking about this morning, for food traded that valuable spiritual birthright and thought more of food than of spiritual things and of the promises of God that were imparted through that line. And so we see a little bit of, of who they are, where they come from anyway, certainly they were affected by this man's decisions and by his lifestyle and by the culture that would happen and, and be given to him, the families that would be given to him. And so we see a lot of the, the, uh, the similarities and we see a lot of the, uh, the, the points that tell us something about how we can really truly relate to these people. Some of the other details about this is that you know, they were not, this company of people that were attacking Israel were not going to be utterly destroyed at one time like Pharaoh was destroyed. The scripture tells us 
that they rear their ugly heads on other occasions. They are a thorn in the side of the people of Israel. In fact, their first king gets into a great deal of trouble because of how he deals with the Amalekites. <clears throat> they, they must, unlike the Pharaoh and his armies, these are the first enemies that they must actually engage with themselves. They are summoned to engage this enemy. They are summoned to fight this enemy. And you know, we, that fact can't be, uh, you know, uh, overlooked. You know, like I said, it, it, there may have been something about witnessing the incredible miracles of, uh, that God did to defeat Pharaoh. But here, this slave people were called to action now. Now, God, through Moses, summons Joshua summons the commanders of the armies and he tells them that the time has come to get the men together, get the weapons together and go out and fight and that they too had a stake on this journey to God's promised inheritance. And so this is a very unique situation. This is a very unique situation for them. This is the very first time. And you know, we might have had the impression that, that they would never have, have to lift a hand again, never have to grab a sword, never have to grab a shield, never have to use a sling. God is going to do all the work. But the point is that they were summoned to fight. This was the beginning of many battles. And there's things here that they must learn. And you know, when we think about our journey onto God's promised inheritance that's reserved for us in glory, you know, we might have the impression from time to time that you know, God will take care of everything. And that is true. Certainly that is true. All our power, all our resources, all the things that we need for victory, certainly they come from God. But the reality is that there's foes for which we are summoned to battle. We are summoned to fight them. When we read, we read this in uh, Galatians Chapter 5, if you will, turn with me there. It says this, this is the conflict that we're talking about. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things you wish. There is a conflict that we are called to. There is a conflict that we are called to and it starts right from the very beginning. Right from the very first moment that we place our faith in Christ. Once we've been brought in to enjoy all these things that we've been talking about, immediately we're confronted with an enemy that lurks just below the surface. We are summoned to battle. And if we have a stake like the ancient Israelite in this inheritance that is to come, they saw an inheritance out in front of them that God brought them into, and the same is for us, a heavenly inheritance, and God calls us to fight. God calls us and says, we must mortify the deeds of the flesh. We must mortify the deeds of the flesh. And you know, sometimes the, the terminology that was used to translate the scriptures from the Greek to English uh, you know, sometimes they, they're not, sometimes they, I would say that in this particular situation, 
don't come across as strongly as it needs to. And what I mean is that word mortify really means kill. It's not a word we like to use. It's, it's a very powerful word, a very strong word. But that's the word that's used. We need to kill the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body, as it's communicated in the New Testament. And there is a summons to go to war. Now, here for the ancient Israelites, this is the first time they were going to have to, to rattle the sabers. They were going to have to grab the sword and take it out of the saber, not only rattle it. There was no, no uh, intimidation. They had to go to war. They had to go to battle. But there was a very unique set of circumstances that, that God was going to teach them through Moses here and their first occasion of warfare that would help them understand how every battle in going into the future would be won. Moses explained to them, get the soldiers, get the weapons. But he says, I will climb this hill. There was a point of elevation there in the battlefield. And he was going up to that hill. Now, when we think about tactics, I don't know how well this served them tactically. In fact, I mean, it, we, we know that it served no tactical purpose, no battlefield purpose. But God was teaching them that while they were summoned to go and fight the foe, that there was something going on on the hill, on this point of elevation where, that Moses would climb to that would be affecting what would be happening out on the field. The scripture tells us that Joshua went out to fight. They went to battle. And there was a, an interesting relationship that was apparent. As Joshua and his men went forward, they, they pushed back the battle lines and they fought the enemy and they discomfited them. All the while that the man on top of the mountain had his hands raised to God. We know what that means. We see the pattern in the scriptures. It is a, a posture of prayer that Moses was taking. A posture of intercession. And he was on the mountain. And his position was to intercede for the people who were called to fight. So that beyond the swords and the shields and the slings, there was a whole other dimension. There was a spiritual dimension. The man on the hill interceding for them. And so the fight went in their favor and they pushed back the lines of the Amalekites and they, and they killed some of them perhaps. But the story goes that they had to withdraw and they had to pull back their lines. Why was that? Because the man that was on the hill, well, the posture of prayer, he was growing tired and as his hands fell the people of Israel began to withdraw. They were kind of losing ground. And as they assisted him, those that were in his company on top of the hill, as they assisted him, then they went forward again and continued to fight and continued to battle and continued to win and gain the better of their foe. We learned something very, very important. They were going to learn something very important on this occasion that everything that lay before them all the things that they had to do, the battles before the, getting into the promised land and all the campaign, all the campaigning throughout the northern and the southern parts of the promised land that God would give them. There was something very, very important. There was a spiritual element that they could not take for granted. They had to have the intercession of the priesthood 
which we know that Moses was from that particular family of the Levites. They needed to have that intercession. They needed to, they needed to intercede before God to find the victory that they were looking for. And when we think about this enemy, the flesh, that is, it, it wars against the spirit. It's the perpetual enemy of God. It is not subject to God. How do we achieve victory? Because we're called to fight. We're called to fight it. Believer, if we don't go out against it, if we don't deal with it in our own lives, we're allowing something not only to hinder the blessing of God in our lives, our spiritual progress, but also the company of believers with which you fellowship. The flesh cannot be allowed to go unchallenged. We're called to fight it. We're called to mortify the deeds of the body. And so... What do we do? Where do we find our help? Well, we have to be a people of prayer. We have to understand that intercession is a very important part of victory against the flesh. Like the Amalekites, uh, when they were discomfited, the scripture tells us they were, they were beaten, but they weren't destroyed. They ran away. They left. They fled. And like I said, the scripture talks to us about other occasions where they, where they hindered the people of God. They ruined the life uh, of the first king of Israel to some degree because of his failure of dealing with them properly. They would come back again. God said so. He had set an objective. I will, I will rub out the remembrance of the name of Amalek forever. They are my enemies from generation to generation. And the flesh is the very same thing here in the times that we live in, in the church. It is the enemy of God and it must be fought. It must be fought back. And how do we do that? We do that by prayer. We see that the Lord Jesus, shortly before going to Calvary, something incredible, the greatest war, the greatest battle of the war, if you will, was going to happen in Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus was going to go there. And the conspiracy that was engineered and the power behind it came from the enemy of God, Satan. We know how many people Satan came into and persuaded as, and that were pieces of the conspiracy to take the Messiah and have him executed and crucified. And you know, before our Lord went into battle, that night he prayed desperately. He prayed all night long and... Sadly, those men that were to go into the battle with him, too many times he came and found them sleeping. And he had to challenge them. He had to chide them that they needed to pray because the battle was coming. But he already knew, thank the Lord, he knew what was going to happen. And thankfully, he could speak to Peter, the one that we, we see the major failure of a man like Peter in that situation. And uh, we could see how he fell apart. And certainly that was in part to his failure to pray and prepare. Although we know that the Lord Jesus explained to him, he knew what would happen. But we take consolation because the Lord Jesus answered him. He said, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you are restored, or when you are returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And so we see the ultimate importance of prayer. And there on that mountain, 
that man was assisted because he had to continue to intercede so that they might win the, this occasion, this battle against the perpetual enemies of God. And a man named Hur with, with one arm and Aaron with the other helped him so that they might have the intercession necessary to win. And you know that speaks to us about the one who told Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Luke chapter 22. That is the same one who prayed to the Father that for our sakes he set himself apart. He is that great high priest come of a different order. A priest forever, the scripture says. An unchanging priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And this priest came from the family of Judah. Her was one of one of that, that family. And so we see that for us, where we, we fail to be on our knees and intercede and to find God's power through prayer to find the success, to continue the battle against the enemies of God, we have one who never grows tired, who never grows weary, who His intercession never ceases, and He secures us forever. And so... I just wanted to take some time this evening for us to look at this enemy. It is a real enemy. And this is one of the major enemies in our day that goes unchallenged among the people of God. And sadly, that is why we know the failure that we know and the weakness that we know because the flesh is given place. But we're called to fight. We're called to kill. And we need to pray to win the battle until God once and for all stamps out the foe Because he clearly, he states it clearly, there will no flesh glory in his presence. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. And we're just thankful. It it is so vast and we feel, I know I feel, um, you know, my own understanding is is so poor and and even in practice. And we just pray, Father, that these thoughts will, will, will be used by your spirit to challenge us to cause us to explore further this spiritual life, the the battles that come with it, the responsibilities that we're called to uphold, to engage the flesh, to fight it off, and to do it on our knees. Father, we're just thankful for the victory that we have in Christ. We're thankful that He ever lives to make intercession. And this journey that we've begun by faith, He will make certain that we arrive on the shores of glory and bear His own likeness. Hallelujah, we give you the glory. We just ask your blessing now, Father, on these thoughts uh, and on this fellowship of believers. And as we part now, uh, that you would grant that to us in safety, Father. Keep us. We just thank you for our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.